Hello, and welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the CPG and retail industries. I'm your host, Mike Bowden Distal. Grace Sharkey is out, so it's just going to be me uh, today. So it's kind of not going to be as good as it usually is. But um, what I have for you today, some interesting uh, topics. I think we have some new offerings in Sonar that are relevant for shippers, which shippers are the intended um, audience of this um, show, although I'm happy to have uh, anyone who's, who's not a shipper as well. I'll talk about uh, the freight market a little bit. I'll talk about the activist situation at Norfolk Southern and what that means for shippers. Um, there's no longer a show called People Speaking Rail, so I'm going to have to speak some rail here. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, an update on the Amazon uh, marketplace, which I think there's some interesting developments there that could really potentially be pretty impactful. Before I do all of that um, and hit those four topics, uh, I want to encourage everyone who's not already signed up to sign up for the Stockout newsletter. Uh, so I send out a Stockout newsletter, which follows some of the same topics here, some others, just whatever I find interesting. The way to do that is to go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout, or just go up to freightwaves.com up at the top under newsletters. It's going to be the first one there under supply chains. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to sign up uh, for that. Also happy to uh, talk uh, through you know any additional topics that that people have in mind that they'd like uh, to to see me uh, cover. Um, so with that, I get into the first uh, topic today. Is Sonar releases some some new data series, which I think are, are important for shippers. I mean, I think you know maybe the intended audience was was the the, the brokers, um, but uh, I think it's relevant for shippers as well. And so Sonar releases a national reefer spot rate index index the RTI as well as a quick rates tool. And so the idea behind a national um, spot rate index, and this is what we're looking at here. So this was just released on Friday. This is a national um, you know, average of reefer spot rates. And um, you know, those are going to include uh, fuel. And so this is just kind of, if there's one data point to, to look at and you just want a quick and dirty average this is going to be it looks like it's two dollars and 77 cents a mile and you can see this is a um about a two-year uh, chart one, one and a half year chart you can see those are, are lower than they were um you know at that period of time of course but uh, it's actually improved you know somewhat uh in, in in recent months kind of now the 277 range and we could talk through a little bit about you know so, so kind of why why that is um and so we also released a flatbed spot rate index you know i think a lot of retailers are in the the the, the this, this the spot rate, the the, the, the flat flatbed, you know, the reefer is more uh, relevant for them. And now this chart, what, what we have here is in white is that RTI, that reefer um, spot rate index, and then the purple is the reefer tender rejection rate. And the idea is that tender rejections do tend to lead changes in the spot rate. Changes in the spot rate tend to lead changes in the contract rate, and so you want to pay attention to all those things. Um, but uh, you know, in particular, I'd say the the more leading indicators, which would be things like you know tender rejection rate, tender volume, and that typically leads to you know changes and in, in the same direction for spot rates and contract rates. Those are the the, the market that, that that a lot of these um, shippers you know participate in um, that, that contract uh, market and so you see that you know in the recent months some of these these, these rates have risen it seems like maybe we're getting into a situation where um, there's some support for uh, contract rates finally um, also launched in addition to those those national nationwide indexes launched, launched a quick rates tool and the DB time quick rates tool is this is um, is this can be very similar to the calculator function on your computer where I think I use that probably 10 times a day, 
the, the calculator function on the PC, just to do a quick calculation, or I think on, on, a, on a Mac, it's command spacebar, gives you a way to just uh, do a quick calculation. So similar to that, we have a tool uh, which you can have, you know, even outside of just sonar, if you have too many things open, if you're a broker, or even if you're a, a, a shipper, um, can kind of keep this and, and just have a real quick and dirty way to calculate a rate here, where just all you do is type in your origin destination. I'm not sure um, what is being moved from Chattanooga to Las Vegas. Um, person must have been excited about the Super Bowl, despite the fact that it's a really a lame uh, matchup this year. Uh, but it's a quick and dirty way to get at a, a, a spot rate. Um, you know, it gives an option to actually having to go into sonar and do your two-factor identification, all of those things. So would encourage you to reach out if you're a sonar a subscriber, reach out to your customer service um, representative, customer success representative, and uh, have them get you set up uh, with that. Um, there's also, um, for those interested in Reefer who are interested in that Reefer spot rate index, are also going to be interested in a show that Mary O'Connell did the other day, which uh, was on reefer cargo theft. So I just wanted to, to, to highlight that as well. And I think all that discussion on reefer uh, spot rates gets into the next topic, which was a good article that Zach Strickland wrote over the weekend, spread narrows between contract rates and, and, and spot rates. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we want to have spot rates in sonar as a nationwide index. Now, no one ships the spot market for the entire country, ship spot market on a particular lane. But um, we have series in there that shows contract rates for the whole country as as well. And so when you compare those those rates, it gives you some uh, sense of where the contract rates are are headed. And so in this article, Zach asked, asked the question, you know, what do we learn from the spot to, to contract rate spread? And uh, the next sonar chart here shows that there's been a tightening in that spread, and so uh, basically, what we're looking at here is the um, the blue line van tender rejection index, and then the the line that's red and green. When when it's red, it means that the the, the spot rates are below the contract rates. That period where it's green is is the, the contract rates above the spot rates. So really, since the beginning of 2022, the spot rates have been really significantly below uh, the, the the contract rate. It's more so than they would typically be. And they've kind of hung out at a really low level, you know, would say that most of the time the, the spot rates on average are going to be, be below the contract rates on, on, on average because the, the, the spot rates reflect a lot of um, backhaul lanes, sort of carriers taking brokered loads that don't pay very well. And, and, and those seep into the into the average. But it's pretty significant uh, when you see that this, um, this spread that had been, let's call it 60 cents a mile. 60 to maybe 70 cents a mile for a year, year and a half has tightened a little bit to uh, 38 cents. So, it, you know, it, it does seem like the spot market is tightening up just a bit, which, um, you know, if, if you're a, a contract, uh, you know, shipper, maybe you're thinking that the contract um, rates, if you got a, a price cut recently, those are going to be the, the, the most, re the, the last cut in, 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 in the series, um, there's another sonar chart here that that, that um, shows the band contract rates versus the, the the spot rates, and so this is looking at it a little bit different differently um, comparing it to different data sources. But so the, the here, you know, made the the case a moment ago that the the spread between contract rates and spot rates are narrowing, and you know, then begs the question of why are they narrowing? Is it because van 
um, contract rates are declining or spot rates are increasing. And you can see pretty clearly here, the spot rates are in, in uh, yellow. Those are increasing. The contract rates sort of flattening out. There is a little bit of a timing difference where those van contract rates are on a two-week lag in, um, in, in white there. And the spot rates, that's a daily data series. So it is you know, possible that the van contracts change in the next two weeks. But, um, you know, typically, you know, you, you would look at something like this and say, well, is this being driven by seasonality? I think that was part of the case that Zach made in that in that article was that seasonally, this is a weak time of the year for the freight market. So wouldn't expect uh, spot rates to be rising, you know, simply because of the seasonality. Um, if anything, it, it, it should be weak because of the seasonality. It does seem like it's related to, um, you know, capacity starting to come to come out of the marketplace. Uh, there was an, another article that uh, uh, John Kingston wrote the other day talking about the change in transportation employment and how that was down from a year ago. And certainly there've been lots of job cuts at various brokers and all those things. But, you know, the, the biggest segment of transportation workers is, is drivers. That's a pretty good indication of total transportation capacity. So when you see those down versus a year ago, does give an indication um, in in one way that capacity is, is, is coming out of the marketplace. So uh, this the, the question that, that Zach poses in this um, in this article, what can we learn from contract uh, spot rates to contract uh, rate uh, spread? Uh, it, I think it does give some indication that maybe contract rates have reached the bottom. Uh, that uh, maybe we're a little bit closer to market equilibrium than you would typically uh, than you might than you might think. It's it's kind of a situation where there's still capacity out there. But but it's it's maybe getting closer to, to being in, in, in equilibrium, and you always have to look at this in, in the context of where we are seasonally, and if something is happening that's contrary to what's happening, what would typically happening seasonally, it's 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 more relevant. I think that's the case the case here. So we try to um, you can hear more about that from from Zach when he does his Freightonomics show, which I understand is the second um, most listened to show on. Freight waves behind what the truck, and I think that um, goes out Wednesday or Thursday. So you'll hear more about it then. Um, but with that, um, you know, check out the article and want to move on to our next topic, which is a topic I could speak about all day: uh, railroads and um, investors. So the question is: Will Nor Norfolk Southern's activist situation lead to service disruptions? And you know, the the stock was 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 strong on a Thursday. So this this report came out, you know, Wednesday night or Thursday morning that Norfolk Southern has activist investors in the shares. Norfolk Southern has been struggling. There was some um, you know speculation that you would have uh, an activist situation. It was sort of confirmed. This activist fund in Cora reportedly has a one billion dollar position in Norfolk Southern shares. It doesn't seem like they're the only activists. It seems like there's a couple others that are also pursuing the, some of the same objectives. Yeah, that's what those objectives are. They want the CEO, Alan Shaw, to be replaced. So that's the same CEO that went through all the turmoil last year with East Palestine derailment. I'm sure that derailment took years off of his license, life. This um, activist situation um, it probably takes even even more just as, as, as stressful as dealing with the um, de derailment. But it's essentially, the um, operating ratio has lagged the peer group. So it's a very sort of well-worn playbook that when class one railroad has an operating ratio that's worse than the peer group activists pile in say this is the one that's 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 undervalued they try to get them to um take costs out of the cost structure to improve the operating ratio improve the earnings um etc et, et and so 
investors are excited when there's an activist investor in the stock. And when uh, that news came out, Norfolk Southern shares were up 9% on Thursday. On that day, it was the third um, highest gainer um, in the S&P 500. And so it's good for the stock after a you know, week, a quarter earlier last week when Norfolk Southern reported, John Kingston did an article writing up that um, that earnings report from the site, really got to the crux of the matter where all the analysts asked, you know, why can't you be more like the other class one railroads and have a better, um, you know, operating ratio was was kind of the crux of that, uh, the, that, that article. Um, same argument that the um, activist investors are, are, um, are, are making, but so investors are excited about it, but from the perspective of the stock out, which is retailers or CPG shippers, I would be concerned if I'm an intermodal shipper and I, I see this active situation just because the pressure is going to be to cut personnel, to maybe reduce the capital expenditures. All of those things could hurt intermodal service levels. And the intermodal service levels, you go back a couple of years and they were just dreadful. In the past you know, several months, they've been a lot better. You know, I've heard from uh, CPG shippers specifically that they've been using intermodal more specifically because the service levels have improved. I heard the opposite, you know, going back a couple of years where they were pulling some of their containers out of intermodal terminals and trucking them because the service was so bad. So I, I see this and the pressure, whether it's the current CEO or they replace Alan Shaw with somebody else, you know, the, they're, they're going to replace him with someone who's probably a cost cutter. Uh, so I, I would be concerned about the service levels. I'd also be a little bit concerned if I was J.B. Hunt or Hub Group which both rely on Norfolk Southern in the east for um, the, the rail service, because that really directly translates to whether or not intermodal um, has a good value proposition is is not just are you getting a discount to the highway. Is it a consistent you know, service? Is it consistently truckload plus a day or, or a truckload like service? So um, if anything, I, I would be a little concerned about that. One way to monitor that in, in sonar is the O-Rail we call the O-Rail D-O-M-L ticker for outbound rail container volumes, domestic loaded. And so what we're looking at here is specifically a lane that Norfolk Southern is, is going to run in heavily. So this is Chicago, uh, southbound to Atlanta. And you can see that big uh, kind of dip and then and then surge in white in, in, in 2024, which is, you know, related to the winter weather. Uh, but, you know, late last year is, is, is in, you see blue was, was 2023. And you see how throughout kind of the third quarter, into the fourth, that was pretty nicely above the previous couple of years. The reason for that is is the service levels improved and heard directly from from shippers that were using that that lane um, a little bit more heavily uh, than than they were citing those improved service levels. So 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 one way to monitor, you know, service. There's it's it's hard to monitor rail service um, from from the outside, uh, you know, perfectly because there's a lot of metrics that are maybe less than perfectly helpful. Things like you know, speed or terminal dwell, which doesn't tell you whether it gets there consistently and on time. But when you look at the sonar data for containerized volume, they think this speaks to whether shippers are finding a value in rail intermodal, if volumes are uh, are strong there. And if uh, the service is poor and they use more on the highway, you'll, you will see a, a, a dip here. So this is, this is not strictly, um, you know, demand. I think it's, it's also, there's, there's a, a pretty significant service component um, you know, in that. Um, so want to move on to, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, Amazon and, 
you know, Amazon, we've talked a lot about Amazon in the show, which makes sense. I mean, the e-commerce giant, they're about 40% of total e-commerce. And there's this question of, should Amazon be responsible for everything it ships and sells? So typical consumer goes to amazon.com, they buy something. They don't think they, they give a lot of thought to whether they're buying that from Amazon itself or a third party. But about 60% of the revenue is from a third party that's making use of what's called the Amazon marketplace. And that's most products that are not, you know, a Kindle or Amazon um, basics or something that's private uh, brand. It's, it's these, these third party companies that are in business for themselves that you will, um, you know, use an Amazon fulfillment center to get their products distributed. And so there's this question now of should Amazon be responsible if there's some product that is sold on Amazon that was from a third party that is either um, you know defective or doesn't have the proper warning label or is just dangerous in some way, has some paint that chips off of it. Is 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 Amazon exempted from that because they're just a marketplace and it's the the seller, the the um, supplier's responsibility, or does Amazon have a responsibility there? And there's potentially this order coming from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission that could classify Amazon as a distributor, and that would make it liable for third-party products, for the safety, for uh, all those things. And that could potentially open up Amazon to lawsuits um, and extensive recalls over over items that it doesn't have to deal with now. Um, and it's just really not always clear to consumers whether they're buying something directly you know, from Amazon or from third party, you know, it's, it's always something that I, the reason I haven't liked Amazon for a lot of products is it just, it, there's, there's a certain lack of quality control, I think there, because so much of it flows through the, the, the third party, um, the third party sellers. I think it's obvious if you don't get the buy box and it's like shop other options for this, this product, which, you know, almost every time that that comes up, the consumer doesn't buy the product. The consumer tends to buy, buy the product only when they get the, the the quote unquote buy box, where it says buy it with one click or put it into the cart. If it says you know here are some other alternative you know buying options, they they tend to bounce, um, and, and they usually only do that when it's a non competitive price, which is a way for Amazon to punish the seller for not acting. Um, competitively, uh, which is a whole nother uh, issue, the issue that the, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, took up. But, you know, this has, I think, implications for other retailers as well. I mean, you know, eBay, um, you know, is the other one that comes to mind. Um, is, you know, some of the other retailers starting to up, open up their own uh, online marketplaces. And so, you know, it's a big, I think, retail question is, do these companies have to have to be considered distributors? And, uh, if, if they are going to be distributors, it's going to make sense for a lot of these retailers to expand into private label um, more heavily or even acquire some of these suppliers or cut some of these suppliers off that are deemed um, that, that are deemed uh, potentially risky. Um, you know, Amazon, for its um, part, would say that they do take steps to make sure that nothing is suspicious or seems like it's a fake product. And they do say, well, they, they do have pretty lenient um, return policies. We can return, you know, pretty much anything to, 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 to Amazon, um, and Amazon tracks that as far as holding a third party, um, you know, responsible. But I think this is a pretty big issue. Um, 
for for, for Amazon are going to be a, a distributor. Um, a few minutes left. Um, we'll talk about a little bit of of, of Walmart news, which um, you know is pretty interesting. That the you know the, the headline was that Walmart store managers could make up to four hundred and four thousand dollars a year. I think that was kind of the the um, you know attention grabbing headline. You sort of dig into the weeds a little bit, and it's like. The, the base pay is 128. The rest is incentive compensation. Maybe the bigger thing is that they, um, you know, the store managers are getting some stock uh, to get them ownership in the company. And you know, Walmart, um, you know, s- says, I mean, this is is a, is a job that's that's harder than it looks. Managing a, a Walmart, you know, superstore uh, specifically, you're managing you know hundreds of employees. There's you know lots of turn, you know, churn in, in, in those employees and. Um, it does seem like that upper end of the range is um, really kind of a stretch goal. I mean, I, there were you know, headlines last year that the average um, Walmart store manager makes about 200000 So I think 400000 uh, if they can sort of completely max that out, um, you probably have to be in the right location, really be a profitable store. Um, but in any event, um, really kind of a, follows on nicely to the article that Rachel Premack wrote you know, the other week that's, uh, you know, why do um, Walmart you know drivers get paid you know, so well, this is, it's almost like, you know, why do, um, Walmart store managers get paid, uh, you know, so, so, so well as well. Um, they also announced this, uh, five-year growth plan to upgrade a lot of these stores, um, maybe makes, you know, Walmart, you know, less of a dump than it typically, uh, you know, would be tends to be one that I think a lot of people avoid just because they just don't like going to those, those, uh, the, those stores. And then they also announced a three for one stock split, which is to get, um, more of their associates on board with, uh, acquiring shares themselves and in, in, in their own retail a- accounts. And, uh, you know, it's probably something that should have been done, you know, sooner. And, you know, part of what goes into there is, is, is Walmart stock, you know, just hit at all time, you know, high, uh, it's very close to an all time high, um, it's really performed well, uh, with, uh, you know, this, the shift into grocery, but, um, you know, even, uh, at a relatively high level, I think their employees could probably do worse than, uh, reinvest in, uh, their employer. Um, you know, with that, I want to give a little bit of a rundown on some of the things we're, we're thinking about for upcoming um, episodes of the Stockout. Is you know some of the things I find interesting in the space is you know really how retailers and CPG companies can leverage AI and data collected about their customers. That's been a big um, you know issue lately, a big um, sort of alternative revenue source where the the retailers can earn a much higher margin if they're selling data collected to their customers, you know, the data collaboration between the retailer and the CPG company where the CPG company can, let's say, have targeted advertising, you know, to people specifically that are, they're, that are in the habit of buying the competing products, maybe targeting those promotions. If you're selling a, a protein bar and your cliff bar and you, you sell, give, you know, maybe your, your bars away for free to people that buy the competitor, um, you know, I think that's pre- that's pretty valuable. Um, so really, a lot on inventory management using AI to better manage inventory levels. I think is a big uh, you know topic. Um, you know, a big topic that we're going to touch on also is how shippers should be positioning themselves against a potential turn in the freight market later this year. Which you look at some of the you know increase in the spot you know rates, like I was showing the narrowing of the spread between spot and contract. You think, well, maybe there is a potential turn, you know, coming at some point, uh, you know, this year. Um, this pandemic era trend of supply chain resilience, sort of just in case, you know, um, inventory is, is, is it really going away? How does, how should a retailer and CPG company think about balancing those two, um, you know, objectives? And then 
all the stuff about you know sort of where we stand with warehousing capacity now. It seems like that with with warehousing, there was always um, either too much of it or, or, or too little of it um, during the pandemic. There was you know, warehouses were overstuffed, and then it seemed like we we're going to overbuild the warehousing. Now it's um, it's it's come you know some of those projects have been canceled because the inventory's got to be a little bit lighter. So um, you know what does what does inventory say about freight demand? There's also a, a big um, you know, kind of uh, another variable to to see with the, the the freight markets is is inventory. So there's a lot of uh, you know shippers that will will say that you know it used to be pretty easy. You would look at what the National Retail Federation is expecting for retail sales, and that would tell you exactly what demand is going to be um, you know on the highway or coming off the ports. But the fact that inventories have either been sort of too high or too low in the last few years. It's it's really sort of the 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 last you know kind of piece to to really understand what's happening in the, in the freight market is to um, you know get better data about that. So that's something that um, we're, we're we're trying to do here at at Freight Waves. Um, you know, also going to cover the Coker Albertsons transaction. Uh, we'll see if that closes as expected. And then uh, another topic is all these um, are, are the ultra processed foods. Really, the boogeyman that they are made out to be that seems to be the hot um, you know topic right now is to you know avoid ultra processed foods, which really um, is most of most are our are large portion of what I would consider um, you know, consumer packaged goods would, would fall under that category. So those are some um, you know, topics that we hope to hit in the coming weeks, um, you know, open to hearing about others. Um, and with that, um, out of time for today and hope everyone has a good week. 